As uh, was already mentioned, uh, today marks the first Sunday of the season we call Advent. Uh, And that word Advent means the arrival of someone or something special. And so in Christianity, that uh, this season of waiting that leads up to Christmas Day is called Advent. And typically, right, we focus on the arrival of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem. But our, our focus actually is, is in two ways. Not only do we remember Jesus' first arrival, but we're also waiting for his second arrival, his second advent. And so this season, uh, for those who live on this side of the cross, uh, we're not waiting for the baby born in a manger, a food trough. That's, that has happened. That work is accomplished. We remember it. What we're waiting for is the return of the king of glory. And so to that end, uh, we are spending this Advent season um, looking at some pictures of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Uh, so I know some of you have been uh, asking for a series in Revelation. This is as close as you're going to get for right now. Uh, and so that word, Revelation, and it's Revelation, not Revelations, singular, Revelation, Uh, The Greek word is the word apocalypse. Apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. The Greek word apocalypse means to reveal something, which is what Jesus is doing for his follower John in this book. An apocalypse, apocalyptic literature, is is where God draws back the curtains, as it were, uh, and he reveals real reality. Right, what's going on in the supernatural realm behind what we can see. That's, what, uh, that's what's happening in this book. Now, before we read today's passage, we need to do a, a quick test. It's just two questions. You don't have to answer these questions out loud. All right, you just think them in your head. The first question is this. What was the last thing that you ate? Hopefully that's not too hard for you to answer. Got that answer? All right. Here's the second question. What is one of your favorite toys? And yes, even if you're 65, you have toys. But in case you're struggling to answer that question, maybe think back to one of your favorite toys when you were a kid. What's one of your favorite toys? All right, everybody answer those two questions. So here's why we took that test. What you used to answer those questions was this God-given tool in your brain called your imagination. You imagined the answer to those questions. The reason why we have to make sure your imagination is working is because of what we are about to read. Revelation and apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic, and the intention Right? Jesus' intention in revealing these things to John and then to us is that you're, you would see in your mind what he is talking about. And so if, if you think that the imagination is something for children or only belongs to works of fiction or art, you are mistaken. Uh, you use your imagination all the time. In fact, I'm going to submit to you that the imagination is the way to your heart. 
that if your heart and mind are not captured by what is in there, then you will not have any interest. You, you'll be inclined to, to give up or consider something is not worthy of your attention. Right? The imagination is the way to the heart. If something doesn't capture your imagination, it's very unlikely that it will capture your heart. So I, I recently built an eight-foot picnic table uh, to go in our backyard. That is out of the norm for me. I'm not what I would call a particularly handy person. Okay? So what is it that prompted me to complete that project? Well, it was my imagination. I envisioned family and friends sitting around the table eating good food and laughing together and sharing deep conversation. Right? That's what spurred me on. It was my imagination. Jesus is doing the same thing here for John and for us. He's going to give us some very remarkable pictures and we must lay hold of them with our imaginations so that they will not just communicate cold, hard facts to our brains, but so that the picture of Jesus will capture our hearts. So over the next few weeks, you're going to need to dust off your imagination. And you may even, as I, as I read, if you're comfortable with this, uh, you may even want to close your eyes as I read today's passage just so you can better capture what it is. Again, if you're comfortable with that, you can. If not, that's okay, too. But let me pray, and then let's read God's Word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for delivering to us this Word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would now illumine our minds, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things in your Word and be transformed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find today's passage on page 1028. John writes this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That would be what the early church called Sunday, the first day of the week, because that was the day that Jesus rose. And so we also call this the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first 
and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. And all flesh is like grass. All its glory is like the flower of grass. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. What God is doing in the book of Revelation is something like what happens in the movie The Wizard of Oz. Uh, you may have, I mean, you're too young to have seen that, but hopefully you can see that. It's something of a classic. But if you don't remember or haven't seen the movie, you know that at the beginning, uh, Dorothy's life in Kansas is in black and white. Everything that happens to her is in black and white. Um, and then the tornado comes along and picks up her house and carries, carries it off into the sky. And, and Dorothy falls asleep or passes out. But when she wakes up in Oz, she awakens in full color. That's what Jesus is doing for John in this book. Is he's taking us from the black and white of our natural existence and he's opening our eyes, right? He's, he's waking us up in Oz, as it were, uh, to, to see things in full color. John is in prison uh, on, in an, on an island in the Mediterranean Sea called Patmos. And he tells us that he's there because of the word of God. And because he bore witness to Jesus. Which, just to connect you with what we've already been looking at in Matthew, is exactly what Jesus said would happen. All right, in Matthew the end of 9 into 10, Jesus has been talking about what would happen to those messengers that he sends out. John was there some 60 years prior to this point. Now he's an old man, but he was a young man at the feet of Jesus, hearing that promise to Jesus, and no doubt he didn't fully grasp what it was his Lord was telling him that day. But here John is, after 60 years of faithfully following Jesus, of doing exactly what he's told, he's in prison uh, as a result of the word of God and because of bearing faithful witness. And he's worshiping on the first day of the week, the Lord's day. And then just like the prophets of the Old Testament, men like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, the, the Spirit carries him away, not physically, but carries him away into kind of heavenly reality and gives him visions, that full color to see spiritual reality. And we're going to look at some of those visions over the course of this series. And this opening image really isn't one of the future, but one of the present. What John sees is that Jesus is Lord of his church. That's the, Jesus, John sees that Jesus is the Lord of his church, and because Jesus is the Lord of his church, we can endure. We don't have to be afraid, and we can endure, which is really the point of the whole book of Revelation. You want to know why Revelation was written, why it's in your Bibles? It's to afflict the comfortable, right, to those who would compromise because Jesus tarries long, and so those who would give up and say, oh, I don't know. 
It's to afflict. It's to, it's to challenge. It's to warn those people. But also to comfort the afflicted. Those who are suffering. Those who are struggling. Right? Like the prophets of old, Revelation is intended both to convict and challenge and to strengthen and give hope. So a couple of ways we're going to look at this. First, what we see is trouble is normal. Trouble is normal, so we need to endure. And we're enabled to endure two reasons. One, because Jesus is the king of glory, and Jesus is the king of comfort. So let's look at each one of those in turn. Trouble is normal. Look at verse 9 and see how John describes himself. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. That word tribulation that means trouble or affliction, uh, pressure. And if you've been raised around Christianity in America in the past hundred years, you have been trained to hear that phrase, the tribulation, and think that it refers to some future moment of intense tribulation that will happen after Jesus raptures some of his people. Now, this may come as a shock, and I don't have time to lay all of this out for you, but I do not believe that is a biblical position on Revelation. That, that came about in the 1820s. It came to us from the British Isles. It is not something that the church has traditionally believed for its long history. But one of the main reasons why I don't believe that idea that the tribulation is something that we're going to experience in the future is because of this verse right here. John is experiencing the tribulation now in his present life. He is undergoing trouble. He is experiencing tribulation, affliction, which is exactly what Jesus promised in John 16, when he said, in the world you will have trouble. That word, same word here, tribulation. So let's read it that way. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. It's also what Paul, the apostle, tells the early churches that he planted in Acts 14, verse 22. We see that he and Barnabas are uh, going back through the churches that they've planted, and they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, don't miss this, that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation does not refer to some future moment of persecution. It refers to every moment of the church's history from Jesus' ascension until he comes back. That it, that this period in time, the one that we live in right now, is characterized by trouble, by tribulation on account of Jesus. That's normal. And so John says we are partners in affliction. But that's not all he says. Look what he says. Your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. See, you and I are prone to think wrongly that if we're being troubled, then we've done something wrong. You'll hear people say things like, I must be outside of God's will. Or this is not what God has planned for me. But no, no. John says that to be 
partners in affliction, to be partners in tribulation, is to be partners in the kingdom. They go together. That's what Paul told the early church. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. So if you are being troubled on account of Jesus, you are right where you are supposed to be. That's what John is saying. And even that's not all. Partners in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. They all go together. Tribulation, kingdom, endurance. John is writing so that we will endure. I hear this word endurance and I think of the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. uh, When the Allied soldiers are in the Battle of the Bulge. If you haven't seen uh, Band of Brothers, especially if you're an older teen or adult, I highly recommend it to you. Um, but they're, the Allied soldiers, the American soldiers, are pinned down uh, in the Battle of the Bulge or in foxholes and trenches, and Nazi shells uh, are constantly bombarding them, splintering the trees, lighting up the sky, and they're huddled together, waiting until they can emerge and make their assault. That's what I think of when I read Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, which says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. You see, he's writing that because it would have been costly for them to meet together. It would have been risky for them to gather as Christians. Uh, It had already cost some of them. Some of them have been arrested. But the writer to the Hebrews says, don't stop meeting together. Don't neglect to meet together. Instead, continue meeting together for the purpose of encouragement. Encouraging one one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's what Hebrews says. What do you think we're doing here? What do you think the purpose of this gathering is? Is it simply to learn more about God? Sure, that's part of it. But I think that's part of our problem is that we've minimized the worship gathering uh, to a handy lesson, uh, to something that's merely informational. No, uh, when we come together, we are here for encouragement, right? I can listen to good sermons on my phone. You can find far better sermons on your phone, in fact. But what we do here, I can't do on my own, right? I need the worship gathering. I need to hear you singing and speaking the words of Scripture and praying because I'm in trouble, right? Because spiritual bombs are exploding overhead and maiming people all around us and the casualties are everywhere. And so we need this. I need this because I look at the world and my flesh wants to tune out and walk away. I need this because I can grow weary and cynical and spiteful. So I need brothers and sisters, partners in tribulation, to encourage me, to help me endure. That's what we're doing here. That's the purpose of our gathering. We need this. Did you notice that all of these things John mentions are In Jesus. Christians are not just partners with each other in these things. No, 
Jesus is with us in them. He experienced tribulation. We experience tribulation. It's his kingdom. We're a part of his kingdom. We will reign with him, the Bible says. He endured. We read that in Hebrews 12. So we can endure. We are united to him, which explains what John sees next. Jesus is the king of glory. John hears, uh, as he's carried away in the spirit into into this vision, he hears a loud voice commanding him to write a letter, to write down what he sees to seven churches. And he turns to see where this loud voice is coming from. And, And what does he see in verse 13? He says, one like a son of man. Now that phrase, son of man, simply means human. But that phrase comes from the prophet Daniel in chapter 7, where we see Daniel sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and presenting himself before the ancient of days, before God. He's the one who's come to conquer the, the rival kings, the beast that Daniel has seen. And he's called one like a son of man. And this is how Jesus refers to himself most often in the Gospels. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And so what does, it, what does this Son of Man look like? Now, as we look at this, I want to share with you a, a tip from uh, Bible scholar William Hendrickson who says when we, when we look at imagery like this in apocalyptic literature, we need to make sure that we look at the whole picture together. Right, it can be very tempting to take each one of the parts of the symbol and, and try to drill down and figure out, okay, what does this exactly mean? And what does this exactly mean? And Henderson says, that's, um, no, we, we need to take the whole picture together. All of the details are making one concrete point. So if we divide them up, it's kind of like if I were to, to come to your house and you had made me this wonderful chocolate cake. And I said, ah, that's okay, but I would really prefer to eat, eat all of the ingredients separately. So could you bring out the butter and the sugar and the flour and the milk? I'd prefer just to eat one of those at a time. That would be ludicrous, right, unless your chocolate cake was really bad. But, uh, right, that would, be, that would be silly. No, 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 we, we are meant to enjoy it all as one piece together. And so we need to ask, what is it that this... This image that John sees, what is that communicating? So what what John sees, and I'm going to explain this, is he sees the Son of Man who is a priest-king. He is a priest and he is a king. And again, these images come to us out of the Old Testament. And so the priest, right, he wore a long robe and he wore a golden belt or golden sash. Don't think like Miss America, okay, think more like a belt, Okay, and and what did the priest do? He worked in the temple, tending the lampstands, and the fire on the lampstands was symbolic of the spirit's presence in the midst of his people. And so here we have a king. I mean, here we have a priest tending the lampstands, presumably in the heavenly temple. And we see that he is a king. His eyes of fire. Right? As a king, a king would have been the judge of the day. And so the Son of Man has eyes of fire. Right? They see through everything. Nothing can deceive them. There is no facade that they cannot look through. And this king has a sword 
coming out of his mouth, his word. And he'll tell the church in Pergamum later that if they do not repent, then he will make war on them with the sword of his mouth. And even later on in Revelation, we see that uh, this king makes war against the nations with the sword of his mouth. And so, in that regard, he's also a prophet. He's a priest, he's a king, and he's a prophet. As a king, and as a priest and a prophet, he's glorious in his appearance. Right? He's got this white hair, a sign of wisdom, normally. Right? And it's so bright, like snow, like you can't even look at it. He's got feet of polished bronze, sort of tre- treading down his enemies. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Ezekiel 1 says the same thing, and it refers to the Almighty. This Son of Man is also God. He's so glorious and so holy that his appearance is like the sun in full strength. Have you ever left a, a dark room, maybe run out on the beach in the middle of summer when the sun is in full strength? What do you do? You squint, right? You, you cover your eyes. Or if you've ever gone skiing or when it snows, and you go, out, you go inside from a, of a dark room and you run outside in the snow and the sun is in full strength. It's blinding. What John sees is this glorious prophet, priest, and king, this son of man. And how does he respond? You see, what he, what he sees is Jesus. This is what, what Jesus is showing us is Jesus as he is. No longer obscured as the carpenter from Nazareth. But now he's still got his human body, but he's glorified as the king. And what is John's response? It's the right response. He falls at Jesus' feet like a dead man. He's so overwhelmed by the glory and holiness of King Jesus that he just throws himself down and awe and wonder and fear. Friend, that's the right response to Jesus. I wonder, has your heart ever been stirred by the magnificence of Jesus? Would that not be, Would the vision of Jesus not be a more compelling way to put sin to death than every other method we try? When you think about your besetting sins, as we mentioned earlier, that that weight of sin which clings so closely, what is it that would cause you to discard it? What is it that would cause you to endure? Certainly not your own strength. I mean, that might work for a time. Pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Lord, I'm, I'm going to try harder, I promise. No, friend, what you need, what I need, is this picture of Jesus. This conquering king of glory who just flattens everything else. And friend, until your heart is stirred by him, I don't know that you will make much progress in life. Our hearts must be captured by this king of glory. Now, not only is he the king of glory, but he also reveals himself as the king of comfort. 
How in the world do those two things go together? Well, did you see where Jesus is? Where does John see him? He's in the midst of the lampstands. These seven lampstands. And Jesus tells us that the seven lampstands refer to the seven churches to which John is writing this. But that number seven, a a, a symbolic number of completeness, the seven churches actually symbolically refer to the whole church. So what Jesus says to the seven is not just for the seven, it's for all believers for all of time until Jesus returns. Jesus is not far away from his church. He is not sitting on the sidelines in a chair just waiting. Jesus is in the midst of his church. And he's there with those eyes of fire and those feet of burnished bronze, seeing through everything. He's there in the midst of his church, challenging, afflicting the comfortable. And he's comforting the afflicted. He is not distant from his bride. He is with her in the midst of the tribulation. But more than that, what happens, what happens next is even more stunning. John is overwhelmed by Jesus' glory. He falls at his feet in awe and wonder and fear. And what does Jesus do? He takes his right hand and he puts it on John. Now I want you to imagine this. John is laying face down flat on the ground. So what must the king of glory do? To put his hand on John. He has to stoop down. And touch him. The king of glory stoops. To comfort his disciple. And what does he say when he lays his hand on John? Fear not. Don't be afraid. It's that verse from how firm a foundation. Fear not. I am with you. Oh be not dismayed. For I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand. Upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Fear not, says Jesus. And why do we not have to be afraid? Jesus tells us in verse 17. I am the first and the last. He is the master of all history. He was there before it all began, and he will be there when it all wraps up. And every single nanosecond in between, he is governing for his glory and the good of his church. He is the first and the last. So every dictator, king, or president will fall before the feet of Jesus. He will be the last man standing. And so his people do not have to be afraid. We do not have to be driven by fear because Jesus is the first and the last. But that's not it. He also says, I am the living one. I died and behold, there's that word again that Matthew loves to use, behold, surprise. I died and surprise, I am alive forevermore. The centerpiece of the Christian life is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why do we not have to be afraid? 
Jesus points us back to the gospel. <clears throat> because he who is the first and the last, this is the, this is the paradox of Christianity. It's the paradox of the gospel. What's a paradox? It's something that looks like a contradiction until you get underneath it and see that it's a truth. That here is this king of glory, this living one, who is the first and the last who died and rose again. That is the bedrock of the Christian life. Christians draw comfort from this. And because he has defeated death, he now has the keys of death and Hades. The key is a symbol of power. If you have the key, it's yours. Jesus owns death. He determines who goes in and who goes out. And so if you have trusted in Jesus, you do not have to be afraid. You do not have to be afraid of him. And you do not have to be afraid of anyone else. Why? Because the king of glory is the king of comfort. He has died and risen again so that everyone who trusts in him will live and reign with him. He is the Lord of his church. This king of glory, this king of comfort is the Lord of his church. He stands in her midst, comforting and challenging. Friend, is that your Jesus? Is that the image of Jesus that captivates your heart and mind? I hope that it would be. Let me pray. Lord in heaven, would you take this word and would you apply it to our hearts that we would be astonished, just like John, that we would be comforted, just like John, so that we could endure, just like John. And Lord, as we come to the table, we pray again that you would comfort us, that you would challenge us, that you would give us strength, spiritual strength for the race ahead. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.